All right, good morning, everybody. Good morning. It's good to be back with you this morning. Uh, my wife has reminded me a few times that I didn't fully introduce myself the first time I got up. Um, so, was, and some of you have come and asked me, where did you say you're from? And I didn't. Um, and I was just waiting for Steve to have to get up and reintroduce himself before I did it. Yeah, no, I'm glad we're in. It's good to be in, in his company. Um, yes, my name's Kyle. My name's Christy. Uh, we're from Mount Pleasant, Iowa, so southeast Iowa. Uh, it's where I grew up, and I have the opportunity to, to be a pastor at my home church right now, so uh, I'm enjoying doing that. Um, any other questions I should answer before I go on? Um, yeah. What's that? How many kids? Five kids, yes. You see us around with five kids from 13 down to six years old. And also my in-laws are here with us this week. Christy's parents are, are have come and get to spend the week with us, which should be good. And I'm pretty sure they build it as free babysitting all week. <laughs> no. All right, let's get into uh, the next part of the story. Uh, we're coming up, um, yeah, moving along in the next phase of the story. Uh, we're going to be primarily in the New Testament now, and if you want to to open there, we'll kind of be back and forth between John chapter 1 and then Romans 5. Uh, but first of all, I'm going to read from the book of Luke. Uh, in the book of Luke, in chapter 24, Jesus, after his death, his resurrection, one of the first things he did when he appeared to some of his disciples, and they didn't recognize him right away, uh, he, he asked this question to them. He says, Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? There's something that had happened, or many things that had happened, that made it necessary, obvious, that Christ should have to die on the cross and suffer and then be raised and enter into his glory. And how does he explain that? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Uh, I, I'm sure I'm missing everything, oh, tons of things that Jesus covered when he was talking to these strangers, or to these disciples on the road to Emmaus. Uh, but the previous two sessions have been a little bit of trying to explain why was it necessary that Christ come and suffer on the cross. And um, as I was thinking yesterday and, and even this morning, um, I'm not entirely sure I did enough justice to a few of the things. Uh, just even talking about the nature of sin yesterday and, and how sin has passed to all men. Uh, scripture is very clear about that. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It's not just Adam and Eve, and the nature of this sin being uh, a really, really bad thing. It's something that creates, uh, it sets man apart as an enemy of God. Uh, it's not just something where we're, we're failing God. It sets us apart as an enemy of God. And, and we were seeing about that just this morning, um, that we were once your enemy, now seated at your table. That only makes sense when we understand sin makes us enemies of God. 
uh, Adam and Eve were saying, no, God, I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to be the God of my own life. And that's what we do every time we choose sin. We're saying, no, I am going to live according to my own laws, my own kingdom. That's treason. That's, that's blasphemy against God. It, it makes us enemies of God. <clears throat> Incidentally, say, if you, if you haven't paid attention, Cody's just been nailing it with the song selection this, this week. Uh, the songs go together so well with everything, at least everything I'm talking about. I'm not thinking about James, but I think Steve would echo that. So thank you, Cody. Um, so the first two things we talked about, creation and fall, really, strictly speaking, those are just the first three chapters of the Bible, right? Um, in a couple days, we'll get to the end of the story, which really concludes just in the last two chapters of the Bible. And everything in between is this story of, of redemption, uh, this third part of the story. So we have creation, fall, redemption, and then consummation. Uh, and if you're wondering, we're going to be splitting this section up into, into two because it's such a big thing. So uh, today we're going to be focusing on what theologians traditionally would call redemption accomplished, and then tomorrow will be redemption applied. So today we're going to look at how does Jesus come and solve the problem, and then tomorrow we'll look at what does that mean for every individual person, and then the next day, the last day, we'll be looking at how does that all end up in the end of all things. So redemption is, again, the term that's normally used for that. Uh, there are so many different terms and so many different aspects of the gospel. There's redemption, there's propitiation. Cody mentioned that uh, last night, propitiation, expiation. Um, but the focus I want to bring, at least kind of following the themes we're following, is reconciliation. And the song this morning was about that. Once your enemy, now seated at your table. Reconciliation. There was Where there was an enemy, where there was hostility between the two parties, between us and God, now there is going to be reconciliation. Now I'm throwing that out to you. Uh, but I want you to think, okay, following the pattern of what we've been talking about, if there is reconciliation happening in Jesus, what is God doing to bring that about? And specifically, we've been following the pattern, how does God speak this reconciliation into reality? What does God do to speak it? You remember he spoke creation into existence, and he spoke the curse and some promises what does God do to speak reconciliation into this situation? He promised the Messiah. Okay, so he spoke those promises. Yes. Something even more specific about that. How does God speak into this situation? Through his son? All right, if you're in John chapter 1, starting in verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. We started with life, now there's death, now there's life again. The life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it down to verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. 
And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. All right, so we're looking at uh, this phase where there is going to be life coming, life out of death, and it's centered around this idea of reconciliation. So God speaks through Christ. His, his Son is the Word, the message, the communication, the revelation that is supposed to come into this situation and be the answer to the problem. Uh, the beginning of the solution, how is God going to make me whole again? It starts with Jesus coming to us. All right, so I've already said reconciliation. What else is God doing in this situation? What other actions is, is, are happening here? So there's redemption, which is the idea of buying something out of, of slavery or of ownership of somebody else. Okay, so sanctification begins here, yes. And we'll, we'll primarily focus on that tomorrow. So there's new creation going to be happening out of this, yes. Uh, we, we see here that uh, this is something that, that God is intending to do, that Jesus is coming. So the action of God is he's sending his son, right? Uh, he's, he's sacrificing him, his son, and the son is willing to sacrifice. These are all different ideas bound up in, in what is happening here. We won't be able to cover everything, of course, but um, if you're in Romans 5, if you skipped ahead to there, I'm going to read some of these verses about reconciliation as well. Romans 5, 8 through 11. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, and just a few verses ahead, it reminds us while we were still enemies, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. The wrath of God that is just due to our sin, to our hostility against God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. All right, so we see here God is speaking into the world, his son to come and solve this problem. Romans gives us the idea that there is going to be reconciliation um, and that gives us the other idea we've been following, dwelling again, right? The ability to dwell again in peace with God. God is acting towards restoring the possibility of dwelling with man again. Jesus, go back to verse 14 of John chapter 1, the word became flesh and dwelt. You've probably heard a preacher mention this before. That word dwelt in the Greek means tabernacled. He set up his tent among us. He came to dwell among us. And he put on, clothed himself in human flesh to identify with us, but also kind of like the tabernacle had that curtain around it to separate the holiness of God from sinful people and to protect the sinful people from God's holiness just breaking out. We also know that one of Jesus' names that he was supposed to be called when he came was Emmanuel. What does that mean? God with us. Jesus coming to dwell with us. 
a very specific physical sign of God's intent to come and dwell again with us. So we, uh, in the person of Christ, we have the promise, the potential of dwelling again in this reconciliation that is happening in Jesus. Uh, we will we'll see in a little bit uh, more about that, because uh, it all comes to a head, not just in the person of Christ, but especially in the death of Christ. Because uh, he brings life to us, but he brings life out of out of death. Go back to Romans chapter five, verse ten. For if we were, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by what? By the death of His Son. Uh, this isn't just uh, some conquering hero coming in and just killing all the enemies and then save the day and riding off into the sunset. Jesus is stepping into this world, and it's through his own death that this situation is resolved, that reconciliation is achieved, that that peace is made possible. Uh, A few verses later, down in verse 17 of Romans 5, For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, that one man being Adam, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. There is life coming out of the death of this new man, Jesus Christ. We see God taking action here, initiating this rescue plan, sending his son, the word, incarnate among human beings, Let's think about this from the other side of the story, though. Man's script here. Uh, Christ is coming as a man, right? He's not coming just as God taking action. He's coming as a man. 2 Corinthians 4, we'll be in that chapter a lot tomorrow, uh, tells us, uh, speaking of the God of this world, how he's blinded the minds of the unbelievers, he keeps them from seeing the gospel of the glory of Christ, and it gives this tag, Christ, who is the image of God. We are created in the image of God, right? We are image bearers of God, and even after sin, we carry this tainted image of God. Christ comes, and we are told in the New Testament, he is the image of God, the image of God restored, the image of God the way it was supposed to be, what Adam was supposed to have been like as a man Jesus has come and done that as a man. He is the image of God. That's why he's called the second Adam. 1 Corinthians 15, the first Adam became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. One of the books I've been reading, uh, Christ Throughout All of Scripture, Stephen Wellham points out that Paul is reducing all of human history down to Adam and Jesus. Uh, we, we're going with these four parts here, and other people do it differently, but it just in, in the simple point he's making in 1 Corinthians, first Adam brought death, the second Adam, Jesus, brings life out of his own death. Um, back to Romans 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. But those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Christ is what Adam was supposed to be. 
Let's look at how that plays out, though, with the different aspects of the, the image of God. Uh, man being a steward. Does Jesus come and be a steward of anything? Does he demonstrate that in any ways? Uh, John chapter 4, just a few chapters ahead of where we're at in John 1. Jesus indicates he's on a mission. He is, he's been given a task. He's been delegated responsibility to come to this earth. He says in John chapter 4, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. So like Adam was given the task of finishing God's work, Jesus has come to do the will of his father. Do you remember when we were talking about in Genesis, uh, Adam was given dominion over certain parts of creation, right? And he was supposed to work them and keep them and extend them. What were the things that he was not given dominion over? Seas? Space? And there's also like the, the atmosphere, the, this, this expanse between the waters, which we understand to be the atmosphere and by implication weather. Okay, so think about this. What did Jesus come and do? When he was on a boat and his disciples were afraid and woke him up because of a storm, what did Jesus do? He calmed the sea and the storm. He, he demonstrated his authority over the wind and the waves. And his disciples even said, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? He demonstrated his authority over uh, the, the spirits. Man was not given authority over those. He demonstrated his authority over the spiritual world, casting out demons. And he also gave a sign of things to come, that he was going to finish once and for all the problem of sin and death. He, he attacked the curse in, in different ways. He attacked the curse in the, in the sicknesses and even raising people back to life, something that man was never promised to do. So Jesus was demonstrating his dominion over everything and what Adam should have done and so much more so that his disciples said, who is this? Did Jesus do anything with obedience? Did he obey in any way? Oh, I'm sorry. Let's back up. I really need to use this meme. Yes. Okay. So we're talking about second Adam, right? Um, you guys remember, if you've seen Lord of the Rings, remember the scene where the hobbits are talking about second breakfasts, right? Okay. All right. All right. So Aragorn says, and Adam all die. Yes, but what about second Adam? Yes. Yes. All right. We cannot miss that. Uh, okay. So man is being a steward. Man, Jesus obeying. Does Jesus obey in any way when he comes to earth? Yeah? Like what? I'm sorry? Okay, he, he was obedient, even to the point of death. Excellent point. That wasn't on my list, but it should have been. He obeyed his parents. Mm-hmm. He was sinless. He was tempted in every way, yet without sin. Hebrews 4 gives us that summary at the end of it. Do we see that happening in any particular way, like any scenario where he's especially tempted to sin? 40 days in the wilderness. All right. So let's not forget the wilderness part. Where is this happening? In the wilderness. After his baptism, he went out to the wilderness in contrast to where Adam and Eve were tempted, which was in the garden. So 
They were in the garden. They had everything that they needed, all the food that they needed. Jesus was sent out in the wilderness, no food, fasting for 40 days. At his weakest, and Satan tempting him for 40 days, Adam and Eve probably didn't make it 40 days, right? Um, So 40 days, fasting, wilderness, no provision, and yet God, Jesus, as a man but also as God, demonstrates his righteousness in obedience, um, and he does that by, we'll get to this in just a minute, in worshiping, listening to the voice of God. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. All right, so um, this is something... And some theologians will, will differ on this. Some will understand this to mean uh, that Jesus had to obey throughout his life and build up like credit of righteousness that then he could a- apply to us. I, I don't think that way, and that's not what I'm trying to say. If, if that matters to you, if it doesn't, that's okay. Uh, but I, I think this is a demonstration of the righteousness that he already had. Like his dominion was a demonstration of the fact he was and always has been God over all of creation. Uh, so this is him demonstrating his righteousness. All right, worshiping Jesus. Does Jesus worship in any way when he is on the earth in human flesh? I mentioned one thing already. He listened to the voice of God. He beheld God. He listened to his revelation. Anything else that you can think of? He prayed. Yep. Yeah, he was in the temple all the time. He was frequently in the temple. He participated in the rituals of the temple, the prescribed forms of worship in the law. He obeyed. obeyed. Well, yes, that is definitely overlaps with worship. Uh, We haven't touched on this as much yet, but some of the ideas I, I asked you to think about with worship at the beginning was Beholding God's glory and becoming like him, right? Um, And then also beholding and bearing witness. So beholding and becoming, Jesus is doing that because, as Cody read for us this morning in Colossians 1, he is the the, the fullness of deity dwells in him. He doesn't have to necessarily become more like God. Uh, He is bearing, he is representing him fully. Uh, But he also then, he beholds and he bears witness. And he does this in a lot of ways. Uh, he does this in a lot of ways by going and talking, going and um, doing miracles, healing people. He's bearing witness to the God that he is representing. Uh, but I want to point out uh, a specific way that he does this. Uh, John 1, back in John 1, verse 18, tells us this is one of the reasons he came. No one has ever seen God, but he, so he's still talking about Jesus, he has come to make him known. One of the reasons that Jesus came was to bear witness, to to show the world who God the Father was. Uh, And that's, again, the idea of glorifying God, showing who he is, giving him him exposure in the world and and making his goodness known to to other people in other places. And that's why Jesus came. Uh, But it gets even more specific, John chapter 13. Uh, So if you know the chronology of John. John 13 is right, uh, right at the beginning of the, the last night of Jesus. So right after the, the Last Supper, 
then Jesus goes and uh, spends some time talking to his disciples, several chapters of the Olivet Discourse, the, the last things he wanted to communicate before he then goes to the garden and is arrested and killed. So John chapter 13, they had just left the upper room. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. So this now, what was coming here, his death, and then his resurrection, this is the the real sharp point of why he came to glorify God. Now, what is happening now is when God is going to be most seen in the person of Jesus. The death and the resurrection of Jesus was the sharp point of why Jesus came. And that's really, really where we see all of this story start to tie together. All the things that we've been talking about, all the threads we've been weaving, are coming to beginning to come together in the person of Jesus, but especially in the cross of Jesus. And uh, I want to think with you about that just a little bit. Um, again, Cody's been nailing it. He's already shared some of my verses. Uh, Colossians 1 he read uh, yesterday, I think. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Peace, reconciliation between God and man is being made possible here, but also reconciling to himself all things. The beginning of all these things that we've seen created and have been separated and then ruined by sin, uh, them all coming back together and being reconciled, is starting to take place in the person Jesus, who is the, the fullness of God, but on the cross. And uh, what is happening on the cross is Jesus, this innocent man who's demonstrated his righteousness, is dying in the place of sinful men. And he, like I said, he could have come in as a conquering hero and killed all the enemies and then rode away in the sunset and said, okay, you guys start again, try again. Uh, but we would have been in the same place. We as sinful people, born in sin, uh, we would have started out again and, and then crashed and burned again. That's kind of what happened after the flood. God came in and said, there's so much sin, I'm just going to wipe it out and kind of restart. But Noah and his family, even though they got a fresh start, they still had sin in them. And so the same thing, same thing kept happening. So Jesus came to do something different. He came to take that sin on himself and die himself for every sinner and offer reconciliation, offer peace, offer his righteousness to those who turn to him in faith. Those who uh, turn away from their sin and, and lay down their arms against him, who are willing to say, I surrender, I'm not going to be an enemy of yours anymore. I'm coming to you on your peace terms. And his peace terms are, I'm paying it all. <laughs> you don't have to do anything. You don't have to add anything into the pot. Jesus is saying, I'm paying it all. Just lay down your arms and, and come to me. I've paid for your sin on the cross. And you just need to, to turn to me in faith. I don't know if you've wondered, as a Christian growing up in the church, uh, maybe you haven't grown up in the church, Maybe you've wondered at some point in time, though, why do we focus on Jesus so much? <laughs> um, is he just 
somebody I'm supposed to, to look up to. Uh, I, I don't know all the thoughts you might have had. But everything is coming to a focus in him here. Uh, this is why it's all about Jesus. He is coming to do the work of God in speaking new creation, new life into existence. He's coming as the perfect man that Adam was supposed to be, that every one of us was supposed to be and we can't be. Uh, he's coming to do it all. It's all bound up in him and what he did on the cross. And of course, then rising from the dead, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit because he rose from the dead. Uh, I'm going to come back to this a little bit more, but I, I do want to start following the threads. I don't want those to be just left out. Some of you have mentioned that's your favorite part uh, of what we've been doing in the morning. So, okay, now you can tune in. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, following these threads, the garden. What does the garden have to do with the person of Jesus dwelling on earth? Can you think of anything? We already mentioned this a little bit. Uh, he was tempted. He went into the wilderness as opposed to the garden. Uh, a sign that he, he went into the, the deepest depths of what it means to be human to prove his righteousness, to earn us reconciliation. And the other... Gethsemane, yeah. He was tempted again before he went to the cross. He went into the garden of Gethsemane to pray. And, and it really came to a focal point. Not my will him as a person, him as a man, but yours be done, God. Yes, he is the vine, we are the branches, using that same imagery of, of growth. And I think I was going to mention that tomorrow, but uh, because it, it pictures us as kind of the garden that needs to be tended and grown out of Christ. When he was crucified, what did they place on his head? A crown of what? Thorns. Where did the thorns come from? The curse. Not from the garden, right? But from the curse. Uh, he was crowned with the, the worst that sin brings. Um, and then he will be replaced, he'll replace that crown with a crown of glory. Uh, I was going to mention... I read an interesting thing about that. There is this old Roman tradition. Uh, Roman legions uh, would give crowns to various people for different reasons. Um, but one of them was called the Corona Obsidianalis. Uh, they would, after the battle was done, they would gather whatever was left of the field, uh, just you know, whatever plants were there, whatever brambles and branches were there after the battle was done, they would take the, the scraps left and make a crown out of it. And they would crown the general of the army that had come to rescue them. Uh, is normally done when an army was besieged by an enemy and another ally general and his army would come, break the siege, free them, and then these people would craft this corona obsidianalis. There's a, a, a little example of what that would look like just out of whatever was left over the earth. Uh, thorns, thistles, the crown of thorns. 
I think a very ironic example of, of the people gathering whatever was left over the battle. The battle's been won. They were not crowning him because they thought the battle had been won, though. Uh, but some, some deep irony there. They were crowning him for the right reason. Uh, let's go back here. The garden. Um, let's, oh, one more thing. Garden. John 19 tells us that he was crucified in a garden. He was crucified in a garden, and then he was placed in a garden tomb. And when he was resurrected, Jesus was resurrected after the third day, and Mary went to see him, she didn't recognize him right away, right? You remember that? Who did she think he was? The gardener. The one who was keeping and working the garden and extending it over the whole earth. I don't think that's an accident, do you? No. All right, temple. Jesus was said to be the tabernacle. He came to tabernacle among us. Uh, he himself identified his own body as the temple. He said, destroy this temple in three days, I will raise it. Uh, and then later on in Matthew 12, he said, something greater than the temple is here. Sorry. Oh, I thought someone was shouting something I missed. Well, that's good. All right. Um, Jesus was often found at the temple, which was already pointed out when he was a boy, uh, when he was a man. What do you think it was like when Jesus was presented in the temple for the first time? Because remember, at that point, for a couple hundred years, the glory of God had not been seen in the temple. And then now the tabernacle is here and it comes into the temple. And I, and I wonder, I, I, it makes sense why it's so significant that Anna and Simeon were there waiting for the appearing of this glory of God. And then they were able to say, I, I can go and depart in peace. Now the glory of God is back here. He has come to dwell again with us. Mm-hmm. Uh, something else about the temple. Can you think? Something has to do with Jesus' death and the temple. The curtain was torn. What does that mean? Yeah, this hostility, this separation. We have to stay away from the Holy God because we're sinful. Um, and we can only come to him on certain terms. Jesus met all of those terms in himself and he offers peace through himself. There's no curtain. There's no priesthood. There's no other sacrificial system. Access is now granted to anyone who comes to Jesus on his terms. Yes. All right, the tree. Temple, now the tree. Remember we saw in the garden there was a tree that brought life and there's a tree that brought death. We pointed out last time there was the, the serpent that was raised up on the, the pole in the wilderness so that if anyone looked to it, they would be healed. Um. Sorry, not Moses. John makes the, that parallel. As Moses lifted the silver in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So the servant was lifted up on the pole. Jesus was lifted up on the cross, another tree. And what did Deuteronomy say about anyone who hangs on a tree? Cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. So paralleling a serpent and Jesus hanging on a tree, does that feel like a, a fair comparison? 
No. And it's caused some people to be like, well, is the serpent really bad then? That's, that's not what's happening. Why is Jesus paralleled with the serpent being hoisted up on this tree? For healing, the result of it, but what is the image of, of what is actually on the tree? Okay. So the, the evil of the serpent and, and Jesus being the maybe the foil, the opposite of that, the one who resolves it, that's true, but it, it gets to that point of, of Deuteronomy saying, cursed is everyone. Uh, Galatians would say that he took, he became the curse for us. He's on the tree like the serpent was on the tree because he absorbed all of the curse, all of sin. He became sin for us so that it could be killed in him and does not have to be passed on to us. That's why he was on the cross like the serpent was lifted up. Um, Peter reminds people of that in Acts chapter 5, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. All right, tree. One other thing I forgot to mention, in the Old Testament, the, the temple and the tabernacle is surrounded with lots of different things, uh, furniture that reminded people of the garden. They had a, the lampstands that were designed to look like plants and trees that gave light, and they had plants woven into the, the artwork and everything, hearkening back to the garden. All right, food. Food. What about Jesus' life had to do with food? Passover. So the Passover was uh, something that was used to, to cover people's sin. Um, Jesus participated in that. Most specifically, when? The Last Supper. And he, he conducted the Passover. But then he said what? This is a new covenant in my blood, right? I Take this food, this is my body offered for you. Take this drink, this is my blood offered for you. This is a new covenant. Not just a, a repetition of the promise to come, but this is a new promise in Christ because he is bringing all these, these things together. Yes, the Passover, the, the communion, we call it communion, the Last Supper. Uh, in Luke 22, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. A lot of Jesus' parables, a lot of his teachings had to do with food, had to do with feasts. Uh, you remember the, the wedding feast, the king gave the wedding feast, and people were invited to come in. Uh, the feast is being provided, but the people had to respond and come in. Uh, and in John chapter 6, right after uh, the feeding of the, the 5,000, um, miraculous provision of food that people needed. Right after them, he, he challenged the people who came to him again. He said, do you really just want food or you, do you want me? And he said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Uh, but then he challenged them and he actually spoke really specifically, you have to eat me to have this life. And people misunderstood that, of course. And do we actually want to eat you? No. Uh, but this is, this is really, this is kind of the, really where it comes to the, the nitty-gritty for every one of us. What we've been talking about so far is everything that Christ has done, everything he has come to do, 
as God coming and fixing it and as man doing what we couldn't do, he offers that up. He, he's prepared the table. He, he said, this is my blood. This is my body. But he says, you have to take it and eat it. You have to eat it. He, he's, and he's using that purposefully. When we eat something, we ingest it. We consume it all the way down on the inside of us. And it becomes part of what makes us keep going. He's saying, you have to buy into it. You have to take it and eat of it so that it goes all the way in you and then gives you new life from the inside out. It's not just something you say, yeah, I know that. Not just something where you just subscribe to it mentally, you, you do all the outside things, go to church like a Christian. That's not what he's talking about. He's saying you've got to consume this. And it's got to become a part of you. Clothing is one more thread. Does Jesus have anything to do with clothes? What robe? I'm sorry? Right, okay, his clothes were taken from him and gambled away. He was given another robe in mockery, uh, but his clothes were taken away. I think we're meant to understand he was crucified naked. He was crucified without clothes. Coincidentally, he was also born without clothes, right? He didn't come out wrapped in swaddling clothes. Uh, he was born without clothes, and at the end of his life, he was shown again without clothes. What does that mean? Sorry? He's breaking the curse. Yeah, why were clothes necessary? Because of sin. Also, it showed his innocence. He was dying in the same innocence and righteousness that he was born with. He died an innocent man, a righteous man. They put on clothes in, in mockery of him. Um, but then he, he died without clothes. That will mean something to us. That's part of what he offers to us, that we can be clothed in his righteousness. Uh, later on, we'll talk about that tomorrow. All right, another thread here, marriage. Anything in Jesus's life that has to do with marriage? Cana. His first miracle was at the wedding of Cana where he provided food, right? He, he made wa water into wine and provided it for the feast, the wedding feast. Significant. Uh, a lot of his parables have to do with weddings. The wedding feast I talked about, the parable of the ten virgins, they were waiting on what? Waiting for the bridegroom to return. Yeah. Uh, Jesus talks about that uh, in John chapter 14. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go, would I, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? So talking about Jesus going, preparing a place for us, future, preparing a place for us where we can dwell in his presence. Uh, but then he finishes with this idea. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. I will take you to myself. This is wedding imagery here. This is what Jewish grooms did when they were betrothed. This is what Joseph was doing before he married Mary. He was going and preparing a place for them to live together, and then he would come back and get her. Um, this is what the ten virgins were waiting for when they were waiting for the bridegroom to return. 
Uh, This is what we, the church, are waiting for. We're waiting for our groom who is going to prepare a place for us to come back and and gather us up and take take us with him. One more thing about marriage that I mentioned yesterday. You remember what happened at Wells? Yeah. It was the, it was the, uh, it was the, I can't think of a good analogy. I was going to say Tinder, but that's probably not good. Uh, it was the meeting place of the day um, because Isaac got his wife at the well. Jacob saw his wife at the well. Um, John chapter 4. Jesus is at a well, and who does he meet? He meets the Samaritan woman. And this is the beginning of when Jesus is helping his disciples to see what he is offering. He is offering the gospel, and not just to the people of Israel. He's starting to help them see this is for all people. Uh, Jesus came, uh, for God so loved Israel that he sent his only begotten son, right? No, for God so loved the whole world that he sent his son, and this is the beginning of the God Jesus' marriage proposal to the people of the world. Come to my wedding feast, the woman at the well there. All right, the serpent. The reason the Son of God appeared, 1 John 3, was to destroy the works of the devil. And we have in what Jesus does the crushing of the serpent. Uh, This is a print I have in my office. This is Mary consoling Eve. Mary, the mother of Jesus, pregnant with Jesus, crushing the head of the snake and consoling Eve. Uh, The the end is coming. The snake will be crushed. Uh, And this is another artist's work. This is an artist called, um, he calls his ministry full of eyes. The head of the serpent is crushed in the death of Christ. While his heel is bruised on the cross, the only form of execution known to man where the heel is bruised, the cross, also is the death knell for the serpent, where his head is crushed. Sin is defeated. Death is defeated in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, uh, It's a beautiful picture there. Um, The story is not done. Jesus has accomplished everything he's come to do. He's not yet returned to reign in all of his authority. And we'll get to that as we go on. But the death blow has been dealt here in the person of Jesus Christ. Um, One other minor little thing about serpents. Um, We were kind of tracing yesterday, God's enemies were viewed as serpents and they were crushed, um, often on the head. Um, Did Jesus call anybody a serpent when he was... On earth? The Pharisees, you brood of vipers. Yes, they tried to kill him too. Yes. All right. Now the lamb. Lamb and the blood. John chapter 1. Back to John chapter 1. The first thing that we see John the Baptist saying in verse 29 Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. Uh, it's a really significant thing. Uh, if we go back in, in the story, Genesis chapter 22, we, we saw, we just mentioned it a little bit, uh, where a lamb was substituted so that Isaac was not sacrificed. So there is a lamb for this one man, a, a trade there, a substitution. 
When we get to Exodus chapter 12, uh, and the instructions for the Passover are going on, uh, one lamb could serve as a sacrifice for the whole family, whoever was in the household. We get to Leviticus 16, on the Day of Atonement, one lamb was sacrificed for the whole nation, the whole nation of Israel. But now we get to John chapter 1, and Jesus, the Word made flesh, and John sees him and says, that's the Lamb of God for the whole world, who takes away the sins of the whole world. And note that word too, takes away the sins of the world. All these other lambs just covered sin for a while. The Lamb of Atonement had to be done every year to keep covering the sin of, it, of Israel. This is the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world, can remove your sin far from you. Uh, let's end there. We will, we'll skip the last thread. We'll pick that up tomorrow. Uh, let's finish meditating on that lamb. Uh, his body, his blood is offered to you. Uh, if you don't know Jesus, take it. Uh, he offers peace on his terms where he's paying it all. Take those terms. Be reconciled to God so that you can dwell again with him. If you know this Jesus already, if you, if you know him, put your faith all the more in him. He has done everything for us that we cannot do for ourselves. Uh, we'll build on that tomorrow, how we can live this life in light of that. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the person of Jesus. Uh, we thank you for everything that you have begun to unite in him, everything that you've begun to draw together and reconcile in, in him. And thank you that we are offered peace with you, and the future of dwelling again with you. Uh, God, these are big ideas. Uh, God, I pray even now that, that those things would, would motivate us, even how we finish the rest of this day, uh, that we have someone who has done what we can't do and offers us the, the ability to, to be restored in our role as image bearers of God. Help us to, to bear your image well today. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.